Welcome to the Blue Side Podcast, brought to you by Cambridge University Science Magazine. I'm Ruby. And I'm Simone. Every two weeks, we speak to local researchers, university staff and students, and anyone who works in science to learn about their research and activities, hear about the work that they do, and uncover what goes on behind the scenes. If you want to get in touch with a question, suggestion, or just want to be featured on the podcast, just drop us a tweet. Um, our handle is at BlueSidePod. And you can also email us at BlueSidePodcast at gmail.com. The Blue Side Podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, who supply laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS, and others across the UK. For details of their full product range, visit www.gbo.com. The Blue Side Podcast is sponsored by Nature Careers. If you get a chance, take a look at Nature Careers' new funding website, which collates thousands of international funding and grant opportunities. So whether you're looking for an undergrad or postgrad scholarship, fellowships or funding for a project, try a search at naturecareersfunding.com. Welcome back to the Blue Side podcast. Um, so today we've got an additional member of the team joining us for this episode. Um, her name's Laura. And uh, Laura, would you like to introduce yourself to all of our listeners? Hello, um, I'm Laura. I'm a undergraduate natural science student here at Cambridge. And I am torn between the micro world of material science and evolution and ecology so we'll see if they go together or I go one way or the other but still enjoying both and very happy to be here our guest this week is dr olivia tamova a postdoctoral researcher who studies the impact of stress social isolation and loneliness on the mind particularly in adolescence We spoke to Livia about how she uses brain imaging to understand how loneliness affects the brain and how some people may be more vulnerable to loneliness than others. We also discussed the impact of social media on the mind and how it can both alleviate and worsen loneliness depending on how it's used. Um, Would you like to start us off by uh, sort of explaining a little bit about your research and what you look into? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for having me. And um, so my research, I'm currently a research fellow at Cambridge and I work in cognitive neuroscience. So I study um, how the brain responds to certain situations. And my specific research is on um, looking into how um, stress and how loneliness affects brain function and specifically in adolescence. Um, So that's kind of the broad area. Can you tell us a bit about the kinds of techniques that you use to study the effects of stress on the brain? Like, how do you actually get that information? Mm-hmm. So I mostly or almost pretty much exclusively lately study um, the brain using fMRI. So that means functional magnetic resonance imaging. And that's a method how you can study um, how, like, what kinds of brain areas are active using um magnetic resonance imaging, which is essentially just a strong magnet where people lie in there and it's non-invasive, which is great. So that means you can scan someone as often as you want to and there will be no side effects, um, which is different in some other methods in neuroscience that we have. 
Um, and it also means that um, people can, we can more or less look at where in the brain certain things happen while people think about things or feel certain things. So I'm specifically, my previous project was looking at how loneliness affects our kind of drive to um, re-engage into social contact and what brain region was kind of coding for that or, or what was the neural correlate of that. So essentially what is the neural representation of wanting to interact with others? So we studied that um, looking at participants who were um, spending some time alone. Um, so we had an experimental manipulation. So we asked some people to just not interact with anyone. And then we, we put them in the scanner and we scanned their brains while they were looking at pictures of other people. So that allowed us to look at what brain region would kind of light up and, um, and be also correlated with the subjective feeling of wanting social contact. Wow, brilliant. And so you study uh, children and adolescents. What is it about that kind of critical time window uh, that you're interested in when you're studying stress and, and loneliness and isolation? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, um, one very in or important um, thing that's happening in this um, developmental period is that the brain is still developing. So our brain develops um, until around the age of 24, um, so pretty late into actually young adulthood. Um, and we know that there are structural changes happening there, mostly changes that are related to um, sort of wiring of the brain. So what kinds of brain regions are connected with each other and how strong these connections are. Um, so that also naturally means um, that the environment that you are in will strongly shape how these connections happen. Um, because pretty much um, it pretty much depends on the kinds of experiences that you make during this period of life. Um, and adolescence is specifically a period of life that um, so I'm interested in specifically in that period because it, it's characterized by this reorientation to, to peers. So that means that the social world sort of shifts from having the parents as the or caregivers as the main focus uh, of our social interactions um, to our peers. And that's something that we, we can observe um, across different cultures. So that's not just something that happens in Western cultures, but pretty much anywhere around the world. And um, kind of, um, I guess, interestingly, also across species. So we also see that kind of behavior in animals. So young animals will be mostly focused on, on their um, kind of parenting. Um, figures, whoever that would be. And then during this period of adolescence, however, they, they tend to focus more on their peers and interact with them. And from, from more recent research in cognitive neuroscience, we know that these sort of social interactions, they are a very crucial um, factor for the brain development. So our brains, so it's not just something that we do because it's fun, but actually our brain needs these kinds of interactions to then fully develop. Um, and so, and that then means then um, if someone does not have these interactions, that implies that certain things might um, develop differently in the brain. And that's a question that I'm really interested in, but that we don't really know much about yet. Mm -hmm. No, that's really interesting. And I guess we can all relate to if we think about our own development and like our the creation of our own social circles, that's probably something we can all identify as like, oh, yes, when I, you know, became a teenager I started spending more time with my friends yes that's true mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and so what are the kinds of things that you've you've learned I guess 
Um, because obviously you've been investigating what happens in the brain um, during this time. What, what are your findings? What, what have mm -hmm. we learned? So the, the project on adolescent isolation and loneliness, we are, we're just starting that actually. Um, I've so far investigated this question in, in younger adults. So people who are, who are like technically adults, but still fall into this period of having their brains still developing. Um, one thing that I've looked at um, more recently is how, what kinds of, um, or, or what, what knowledge we have from animal studies um, on this question, because as I said before, also animals undergo these kinds of developmental stages. And there are actually a lot of studies in animal models that look at um, social isolation during adolescence, also younger in life, but these tend to be, um, the effects tend to be very different. And since I'm specifically interested in adolescence, I was looking mostly at that, um, at these studies. And what we, what we know from these studies, and there are quite a lot, is that it looks like um, also very brief periods of isolation or not having the kind of interaction that you want to have or should have in this age period seem to change how our brains develop. Um, and some of it is reversible. So um, if the animal is then brought back into the social group, um, some of the effects um, diminish or, or even um, are gone totally, um, but some of, of the effects not. And that also depends on how long the animal was exposed to isolation. So one, one study that I found pretty kind of really interesting was that they were studying how, how adolescent animals, and that was in the rodent model, I think it was mice, um, if they grew up with an, uh, another animal, but that was not a peer, but an adult um, during their adolescence, how that would affect their brain development. So essentially they were not completely isolated. They did have social interactions, but these interactions were not with um, a peer. And what they found was that um, actually that affected how their prefrontal cortex developed. So they showed something that it, we call pruning. That means that synapses that are not being used are being pruned away. So they're eliminated essentially. And we know that this is a very important process that's happening in brain development because if we don't need those synapses, they, they should not be there. So that's a thing that happens. However, in these animals, it happened much less to a much lower degree. So that suggests that the kinds of interactions that we, or at least the animals in this age period need are, are, are not the ones that can be given by um, an adult animal. And that, I mean, it's difficult to directly translate these findings to humans, of course, and there's a lot of um, debate that's going on. And I'm, I'm certainly also um, very critical of that, but I do think it, it kind of indicates to us that this is something that we should look at more closely in the human brain as well. Yeah, definitely. That's fascinating. Um, obviously, the what's going on in the world right now with the pandemic makes um, a lot of what you're doing very, very topical and relevant. How has the pandemic affected your research? Has it been more applicable or have there been more study opportunities? Um, have you been able to continue or use things that are going on to further your research? Well, I guess all of this. So <laughs> in some sense, I it has um, impacted my research that I cannot collect data. So <laughs> that's a negative side. But um, we're also, so one thing that we recently started um, uh, is, for example, a project where we're looking at, not at the brain, but at self-report, and we look at how, um, 
how social distancing during uh, COVID times, how that affects mental health outcomes and how social media usage um, interacts in these effects. So this is a project I'm working on with Amy Orban, who is an um, expert in social media research. Um, and we're interested in kind of similar questions in this regard, how social media can maybe help or how does it affect mental health? And I mean, what I'm specifically interested in is whether it can help you feel more connected with others or not, which is especially now a really, I think a really important question. Um, so that's a project that we just started. Um, so I guess twofold, I would say. I mean, one other thing I should maybe say is also that obviously now more people talk about loneliness, which is something I really noticed. Um, and there is also, again, a very positive development that um, people speak about it uh, in a much, much more normalized way. So before the pandemic, uh, in, in many studies, if you look at that or, or, or when you look at um, sort of um, out, outreach projects, it was very often the topic uh, was about stigma so that people don't really want to talk about it when they feel lonely because they feel like, okay, that kind of um, shows that something is wrong with me or something like that. And that's kind of pretty much gone now. So everyone feels sort of more or less confident saying, yeah, I'm really lonely because kind of everyone is, which is obviously not a good thing, but I think having this, um, like making it more normal to say, to talk about these things, I think that's, that's a really positive development. Um, and yeah, obviously more people are also interested in the effect of loneliness because that was so, somehow a bit of a niche topic before, which um, I, I never quite understood because if you look at the numbers actually already before um, the pandemic, loneliness was really, really increasing in societies. Um, and I think uh, a few years ago, the UK had this minister of loneliness. <laughs> so um, uh, it looks so, especially actually in the UK, um, there was um, there's the, we we have a lot of data showing that loneliness is really an issue, and that was the case before the pandemic already. Um, there wasn't as much much research on it, um, so now more and more things sort of happen in this regard. And so, in your new project about social media, um, like you were saying, like you're trying to see if, if social media actually makes us feel connected. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, sometimes we hear that actually spending loads of time on social media is really bad because we're just seeing this like perfected version of people's lives or just what they choose to show. So I guess what it, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? And what have you found out so far? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is tricky because we really, unfortunately, know very little about how social media really impacts us. And unfortunately, also a lot of the research that has been done so far um, has studied social media in a very, very Broadway. So in many mm -hmm. studies, the only measure that we have is actually screen time, which literally just means how long did people spend in front of the screen. But obviously, if you just imagine what all the things you could do while spending time in front of the screen, that could mean so many different things. So essentially, this measure is almost meaningless, right? Um, so it's really difficult um, to kind of take some takeaway from this kind of research. And and it also is uh, reflected in the kinds of um, findings that we know um, are shown, which is some studies report that social media can help us feel more connected and is um, helpful, while others show it increases loneliness. So it's it's kind of really difficult to show to really pinpoint what is true and what is not. Um, one thing that people have done um, in the past is uh, when looking at these measures in a slightly more fine-grained way. 
uh, was to separate between active social media use and passive use. And that means that um, so active use would be something like chatting with someone or, or texting someone or or in some way interacting with them. And that can be a very reduced way of interacting, like literally just sending emojis back and forth. But that would count as some active um, social engagement, um, while passive social media use would be something like scrolling through the pictures of someone. And here people have shown that it looks like um, it's the passive kind of media use that seems to actually decrease well-being. So if people engage in that, they seem they feel less well afterwards. And the idea is that it kind of seems to trigger some like um, comparison processes and envy and things like that. So rather negative emotions. While if people just use social media to really actively engage with others, that seems to be rather helpful. So this is kind of the, the state that we're at in social media mm -hmm. research right now, which is already, I mean, that's still incredibly um, broad because also active social media use can mean so many different things. Um, and I think it's really important to, to study in a more fine-grained way. So what are the actual behaviors online that people engage in that actually make them feel more connected um, than others, which is, I mean, now I'm talking more and more about this, but this is actually something that a question that I've been asking myself really a lot lately, which is like, what are the kinds of social interactions or let's say differently, what are the features of a social interaction that actually makes us feel connected? So what, what is necessary to have when we interact with someone that this is a positive um, social interaction that makes me actually feel like I've connected with someone rather than not. And this is not really obvious because it could be so many different things. And um, it could be either just having sort of this full-blown experience of having someone near you, talking with them, connecting with them, seeing them, or it could be maybe some core features that are really necessary and that already fulfill certain things. And there is some indication in, in research that maybe even very reduced um, ways of interacting with others could already be very um, rewarding for people. Yeah, no, that's, that's, it's fascinating because I think sometimes social media does kind of get, all get lumped together and, and the nuances between uh, interacting with someone versus you know people call it doom scrolling where you're just going and going and going um is actually quite a marked difference between them um and i guess regarding that i i wondered what are your thoughts on you know these big social media companies you know how much attention do you think they will pay to, to this type of research is there something you know that can be pushed forward in terms of uh, encouraging social media um sort of companies to to channel more into the interaction side rather than encouraging people to, for those addictive scrolling behaviors or uh, or do you think that it's kind of not something that they'd be particularly interested in so long as they get the, the hits mm. well, that's a cr tricky question and i think that also really probably depends on the kind of um on the different kinds of ways how you can use social media and the kinds of different companies that are out there. So, and some of them might, might be indeed more interested in, in the clicks, well, maybe others not so much. So I know that from people who do study um, social media in a more like for since longer already, that's with some companies you can work with um, more easily than with others. And it looks like, for example, Facebook is quite particularly hard to work with while others like Twitter seem to be more open to things like that. Um, 
So there are more collaborations where you can actually also um, use some of the data and things like that. But I think overall, it's obviously, it's a tricky question. And I, um, I think it's really hard to, um, because obviously, or obviously, maybe not so much, but um, the interests are a bit different here. And um, I guess these companies also often want to do their own research, and then they're not necessarily interested in the kinds of outcomes or the questions that researchers are. So I think it's a difficult um, area and topic, obviously. Um, yeah. Sort of going back to all of that with regard to isolation and all of your studies into isolation um, and the, the way that you're sort of looking at vulnerability to, to, to isolation, you know, some people might be able to cope with it better than others. Um, from, from your findings from all of that, are, are there, is there anything that's come out of it that kind of can be applied in the real world in terms of support for people who experience, you know, severe loneliness and struggle with isolation? I think that's, again, really difficult because also with the effects of loneliness, we, we are still trying to figure out what the effects are. So it's really hard mm -hmm. then to um, pinpoint what then different people like, like what determines variance there. Um, I mean, one thing that we did find was that it looks like someone who, who experiences chronic loneliness will respond different to a period of being alone um, than someone who experiences less loneliness. Um, so that means that that was in the study that I did previously. And there we found that um, if people, those people who self-reported that they um, felt more lonely in their daily lives before actually participating in our studies, they showed kind of a dampened response to the um, to being alone and to also in both both in terms of how much they crave social contact um, or how much they self-reported to crave social contact and also how how their brains responded. So that suggests that if you undergo a certain period of loneliness, of chronic loneliness, it either, it might change how you, how your brain responds then to being alone. And that might have different kinds of implications. It also, however, could suggest the opposite because that's a correlational um, result. So we cannot really pinpoint the causality. So it could also mean that those people who actually already have this sort of dampened response to being alone could be the ones who end up being becoming lonely. So we don't quite know that yet, but we're trying to also look more into that. Um, and there is, I would say, so one maybe important thing to say is that loneliness as has been conceptualized by um, researchers who study loneliness um, has mostly been seen within the framework of kind of motivation. So loneliness in itself is not just like a negative emotion that's just there and yeah, but it's uh, actually something that should drive us to, to um, engage um, with others. So it's kind of, and that's why we actually ended up studying in one of my studies, we compared it to the um, brain responses to hunger because the idea is very mm -hmm. similar that you lack something and then your body signals you in some way uh, or via some emotion that you need to take action to repair what is lacking. And that's kind of the idea that um, how, how researchers in loneliness view this concept of loneliness. Um, so then if you view it that way, it's kind of really tricky to, or maybe concerning that someone who experiences chronic loneliness also responds really 
not that much to being alone. So mm. it could mean that in general, their drive is decreased by a lot. And that could also suggest, I mean, we know that there are links between loneliness and depression, but there could be some, somehow a pathway how we could explain how maybe loneliness in the end could lead to depression, so. Mm -hmm. well, that's super interesting, like comparing it to, to hunger. Cause I guess, yeah, you're right. It's like, if you don't have the social interaction, you should want to have it more and more and more and because you really need it. Um, so yeah, the fact that that doesn't happen is, is, is interesting. Yeah, does that mean that you find a correlation between people who are experiencing more loneliness and a higher desire to spend time on social media and or a correlation between people who have maybe chronic loneliness and spend more time, as you said earlier, doom scrolling? I do think, so this is not a study that I've done, but um, if I remember correctly, I think there was a study that looked at um, different types of or how different people use social media. Um, and I think that was exactly what they found that people who are who report higher loneliness are also the ones who, who tend to be more passive on social media. But again, we don't know where the causality is, right? Because it could be that if you are very passive on social media, that makes you lonely, or if you are already lonely, you behave in such a way. So again, we don't really know. But yeah, there has been some association with these behaviors, yeah. So do you have any findings that maybe suggest what uh, people can do on social media that would either be detrimental or be maybe helpful for loneliness? All right, so I think I cannot um, advise anything beyond what I was just already saying that, and this is so much all we have, which I'm hoping that uh, our new project, especially the one where we're looking at um, kind of more fine grained nuances, how people use social media and how that relates to their loneliness, um, their feelings of loneliness, that they, that can tell us more about that. But I think at the moment, all we can say is what I just said is that um, it looks like passive social media use seems to be associated with uh, lower well-being. So then the suggestion obviously would be then, well, to not do that, to be more like if you try to, um, if you use social media, try to really actively use it, try to post or um, interact with someone, even if it's um, like, obviously that's not a full-blown conversation and things like that, but that might already be something that would make you feel rather, much better rather than just looking at someone else's pictures. And so actually from, from research on, on in general, how brains or how our brains respond to, um, to any sort of social cue, we do know that also very reduced social cues seem to elicit reward responses. So even if, if you showed someone in the scanner a picture of someone smiling at them, even if it's just a stranger, it activates our reward system um, the same way how receiving money would do. And then that has been shown across different kinds of things, like also like hearing someone laugh and things like that. So that's an obviously incredibly reduced kind of um, social cue, but that already seems to do something for us. So I think that also suggests that maybe just even like messaging someone or, or commenting on something could already be something that makes us feel more connected to others. So um, I guess one, yeah, recommendation could be to just really try to be as active as possible on social media if you want to use it, yeah. It's really interesting. It's kind of like the difference between if you walk down the street and see someone you know on the other side and don't say anything versus just <laughs> waving and getting a wave back. Exactly, and we all can imagine how one would make us feel and how the other, right? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Make makes a lot of sense when, when you sort of lay it out like that as well. 
Um, and I guess finally, um, thinking about, you know, obviously the pandemic has been a massive, a massive deal and you could almost see it as a giant global psychological experiment. You know, what, what are your hopes for what we can learn from it and in effect kind of action from it? Yeah, I think my hope would be, and that relates to what I said earlier, which is um, about being more um, aware of the effects of loneliness. So I guess that's something that, and I, as I already said, that's something that we can already sort of observe in, in how like people talk about loneliness, how it's been, how, it, how people report on it in, in all kinds of media outlets. Um, but I think that's something that I would hope that people are become much more aware how, how important social contact is, that it's not just something that we kind of can indulge in if we have free time, but that it's really an essential, necessary thing to do for your well-being and for your health, actually. Um, and we know actually from research on loneliness that that loneliness, chronic loneliness, can actually even impact your physical health. So it's not just mental health, if you want to call it like that, um, but it's it's your whole like being. It's really important to be connected to others. We are all a social species, so this is an important thing. And I think that's something that people are much more aware of now because they do see how their lives look like if they really cannot um, interact with others, and that's not so nice. Um, so um, I do think that's a, like one positive thing, hopefully, that we can take away from this. Um, yeah. I'm sure everyone listening can can relate. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for for coming along and sharing your um, research with us. And yeah, it's been really nice talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. It's really interesting. <laughs>